Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey guys, it's Allie. Welcome back to Infertile Life, the podcast. This is episode 246 called Lucky Seacon. All right, guys, I'm so excited to have Dr. Lucky Seacon on the show today. She is a board-certified reproductive endocrinologist and infertility specialist at RMA of New York. Lucky is also a friend of mine, and you might know her from social media where she is a big voice on uh, you know, TikTok, Instagram, with her super smart, super important information about all things infertility and ART. So today she's going to tell us her family building journey through assisted reproductive technology. And she's also going to talk about the work that she does and why she loves it, what it's like to be such a strong presence on social media, the messages that she puts out there and anything she might try to avoid, and all the amazing things she's doing as part of Doctors for Fertility, which we just had on our Fertility Rally Live event. It's an organization she's a part of, and they are all about creating a world in which every person who wants a family has access to fertility and reproductive care. Amen. Lucky, you're amazing. Guys, you're going to love this one. Without further ado, this is Lucky's Infertility Story. Hello, my friend Lucky. How are you? I'm good. How's it going? Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you for doing this. I feel privileged to call you a friend. We were on a panel together for a Hey Mama event, and I do feel like I got to know you after having watched you on social media and all the great stuff that you're doing just in the infertility and fertility communities. So it's so good to see you again, as always. Thank you so much. And I yeah. should say, likewise, I obviously listen to your podcast. Oh, I've always thanks. admired everything that you're doing with Fertility Rally. Thank I've you. I've been on a Fertility Rally panel before. Yep. Um, and doing that panel with you, even though it was like very short and, and abbreviated, it felt like we went really deep and I got to know you and I consider you a friend as well. So it good. was good to be invited on here. Well, let's talk about your family building journey. First of all, did you always want to be a mom? So it's like kind of a weird question because you'd think I would think about this as a fertility doctor, but I remember distinctly in my 20s, and maybe it was when I was still in med school or I was entering training, saying like, yeah, it's going to be one of those things I check off my list. Like it was just like on my checklist because it's like, it just seems like the thing that everyone does. And it just, I, I assumed that I would. But I remember having a moment in my 20s and it's like, I, I don't know why it's such a vivid memory where I was like, normally I can picture things for myself. Like I can picture myself getting into a residency program and doing fellowship. I can picture myself having patients and getting married and doing this and that. But I couldn't picture being a mom. And I remember being like, uh-oh, do I not have that maternal instinct? And like, maybe I'm, maybe I'm not like someone who wants to be a mom. Like I had that type of freak out moment. And then I just kind of was too busy to think about it and put it like in the back of my mind and didn't really revisit it. And even when, 
I met my husband, I said to him, and he like reminds me of this all the time. I was like, oh yeah, like we're in our early thirties. I have all this training to do. Like, I'm not trying to have kids until I'm in my forties. I said that to him. Mm -hmm. So I was just very like flippant and very, this is on the back burner. It's on my checklist of things I want in my life, but like, I'm not really thinking too deeply about it right now, Mm -hmm. which is crazy to think about now. (laughs) So what did you know about your fertility though? You know, you said you're a fertility doctor, obviously everyone knows that and you're brilliant. Did you think, no problem, I'll have kids in my 40s? Or were you thinking about the biological clock and everything that happens and all that stuff? I knew about the biological clock because at that point when I was having these thoughts, I had already gone through med school. I think I was like probably in my like early residency training when these thoughts and conversations were coming up. But I don't think I had a full appreciation. I think I, like many other, even doctors, but just people in general, I think I overestimated how much control we can have with modern day technology and science. And I think I just, you know, training in New York was on the labor and delivery and saw a lot of women in their forties coming in to have their babies, but maybe not knowing the full story. Just like when we see celebrity headlines and we don't really know how Naomi Campbell or Janet Jackson had babies in their early fifties, you don't have the full picture. So I think I was a little flippant and overconfident and thinking that we just can control everything. And I wasn't very thoughtful about it. And I actually, you know, then got married right at the junction between when I finished my four years of residency training and started my three-year fellowship. And there was no intention or talk. Like we bought a one-bedroom apartment. We were Mm. not thinking about kids. We chose the worst neighborhood for school districts. Like we weren't thinking about kids. Mm -hmm. And then I was in my end of my first year of fellowship. And I was like, I got to get off the pill. I think we should just try. I bet you I'm going to have problems because then all of a sudden the pendulum swung swung in the opposite direction where now I'm subspecializing and I'm seeing day in and day out the realities that science has come a long way, but we can't overcome it all. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I want to give myself a head start. And for some reason I had the skewed perspective. I was like, I bet you I'm going to have problems. I know that doctors often have higher rates of infertility. We're still trying to figure out why that is. Mm -hmm. I had a freak out moment. And he was like, what the hell? Like he was not, he's a very easygoing guy, but I think he was just like, what? Like right. you've always said this one thing and I've just right. gone along with it. Cause I don't really have a strong feeling one way or the other. I know what we'll have kids when we have kids, right. but he had bought into the whole idea of really deferring it. Mm-hmm. So then when I said like, no, 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 I'm freaking out. I went off the pill and like, honestly, it was one of those fluke things. And please anyone listening who's struggling, don't hate me for saying this, but it was fairly quick and unexpected. I assumed it would take like six to eight months and maybe I would need some level of intervention. And it it just happened. And then I kind of was like, oh crap, because I had it in my mind that it would be hard or it would take a while. And then we would be proactive and make embryos and freeze them. And then I I felt comforted by saying, okay, if I do that, then like I'll have enough for the future because I'm starting in my mid thirties. Um, So when it happened and I was like, oh, now I'm starting to freak out about baby number two and when can I make embryos? So it was just such a weird 180. And I guess like your experiences and what you're surrounded by really obviously shape your perspective. And it was just such a change. And you'd think being an OBGYN resident shouldn't be that different from being someone who's in fellowship now focused on fertility. But I will tell you that like, it just wasn't as much, it wasn't as top of mind as it should have been. So then fast forward to delivering breastfed for like five months or something. 
And then I very quickly said, like, this is on my mind. I've been anxious about it this whole time. I checked my AMH, wasn't high, and it had fallen from before I was pregnant. So that mm-hmm. made me freak out even more. Mm-hmm. Even though intellectually, I know your AMH doesn't dictate whether you're going to have good quality eggs or get pregnant. It's it's not really a numbers game when you're ovulating one egg every month. But it still felt like scary and bad because I was like, oh my gosh, you know, I know that I want to bank embryos and my career is crazy and I'm not going to be able to have back-to-back kids. And I know it's going to be potentially harder when I'm 37, 38. So mm-hmm. we went through several egg freezing, uh, not egg freezing, um, egg retrieval cycles. Mm-hmm. Um, the first how did one those I- go for you? Yeah. How, how did you go on the meds? Okay, and- but it wasn't, I didn't get as much as I wanted. So I actually started out with a decent number of eggs, like for being someone in their mid thirties, you know, but there weren't as many mature that I would have liked to have. And after all was said and done with all the, you know, filtering down of numbers and the attrition that we know is so normal in this process. And obviously it's so gut wrenching when you're like waiting to get those updates and calls. I ended up with two normal embryos and I was like, okay, great. But I was like, I'm someone that really wants to have three kids. That's like something I'll be very, I'm always very open about that. I have two right now. That's like the spoiler alert. So my husband and I are at an impasse now about baby number three. I went from being like, I never thought about motherhood or pictured myself. And now I'm like, I'm in it and I have embryos and I did this for a reason and worked really hard to make them. And I would love to have a third. So we'll have to come to an agreement on that. But anyway, because Mm -hmm. I knew I wanted to have a big family, I come from a big family. Mm -hmm. Um, I was like, two isn't making me feel that great because there's like a two thirds chance it could work and a one third chance that embryo would not implant. So if I had at least three, that was kind of my magic number to have one to two more kids. And I was, I would have been happy. So I was like, okay, shoot, now I have to do another one. So, you know, I'm very fortunate and privileged that I work in this field. I was doing my cycle where I worked. Everyone was super supportive. I work at RMA of New York, love my team. I'm still here. I did my fellowship training here. One of my doc, my doctor was actually Dr. Eric Flisser, who did a lot of my training and taught me so much. So I trusted him implicitly. And so everyone was really supportive and I had the ability and access to do this again and fit it into my work schedule and everything. And so we did another round and for some reason, there was this like crazy, insane drop off where I only got two eggs at retrieval. They were both mature. They both fertilized, but nothing turned into an embryo and that sucked. And, you know, yeah, it's an understatement of the world, right? Yeah. But it was just like such a jarring experience for me because I say all of these things to patients all the time and you reassure people and you see people going through these types of hiccups actually experiencing it as a patient was a completely different ball game. No matter how smart you are as a fertility doctor and understanding all this stuff, all of that intellectualization goes out the window and it's just raw emotion. Mm-hmm. And I remember not being mentally prepared for that situation. I thought I'll just do it again and I'll get more embryos and it'll be fine. And then and everyone was very puzzled because they're like, you didn't, I, I waited a few months between the cycle because of Zika. I was like in Mexico with my family on vacation. So I like waited a certain number of months and I was like kicking myself over that. Cause I'm like, this is just like now a sharp drop off. And I knew that I had embryos already. So like, why should I be freaking out? It just felt like I was broken and something was wrong with my body and that things were deteriorating quickly. And it also sucks to inject yourself day in, day out for eight to 10 days go under anesthesia, have a procedure and get nothing. 
you know, it's just like, it's so deflating. Mm -hmm. And I know people go through that all the time in situations where they don't even have the two embryos frozen. So I recognize that's the thing. It's like, I was like, I don't understand how I can feel this way. I was angry at myself for feeling like that. Mm. I cried at work. Like it was so weird. And then I went through another round. Um, and then I ended up getting two more embryos, um, and an indeterminate one. So I had at that point, I was happy and I like got to a place where it was good. Mm-hmm. And I was then, you know, went back to my normal day to day and was a mom. And then basically in 2019, we were trying for baby number two, just not happening. Not surprising. I was 37. You're still trying five. naturally, even though you yeah. had banked the embryos. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Guys, it's a backup plan for me. Sure. It was like, this is for a rainy day. Maybe I'll use this for baby number three. Like, sure. I, you know, but, um, I didn't wait too long. I was like, okay, it's been half a year and starting to find this really annoying and stressful. And I just want to be, I can't believe I've let so much time go by now. My daughter's three, like, I just want to move on. So I ended up doing a transfer and, and it worked. So, you know, that is like my story that I tell patients that are coming to me and thinking about forward planning, because as much as I I say, like, it was sad and stressful to go through the rounds and trying to like build up. And it's so hard, even as someone who intricately understands what it means to have a low response to not separate that out from like, Oh my God, I have fertility issues or I'm, you know, this is, I'm doomed. It's like your mind automatically goes to those places. So now I think I understand my patients better having gone through that process, Mm -hmm. but I also think I'm like, kind of like the poster child for this is how you plan it all out and have a backup plan. And, you know, it worked out for me. I know that it's not always such a linear, straightforward path for everyone, but I'm really glad that I'm glad now looking back, I went through that experience. I'm glad that it all worked out. And I'm glad that I had that backup plan. Maybe I would have not had that backup plan and and done everything from scratch at 37 and it still could have been fine. But I do think it would have been a lot more stressful in that context. I feel like when you're doing something proactive, it's way less stressful than if you're doing something reactive. Yes. That's such a good point. Tell me a little bit more. You touched on this, but I want to hear a little bit more about being a doctor and then being a patient, you know, like going through this, I've talked to like Ruhi Jelani, for example, who was telling me when she's like, I made the worst patient, like doctors make the worst patients. Did you feel that way? Like, were you, was it hard for you knowing everything you knew from a doctor's point of view and then going through it on the patient side? I know that a lot of times doctors will say like doctors make the worst patients. So it was like my mission to prove that wrong. <laughs> I love that. In an effort to try to be the chill, cool girl. I don't think, and, and this has nothing to do with my doctor or the clinic where I worked, but I think I went out of my way um, and expended extra effort to not, to try not to be annoying or to try to make people around me not feel awkward. And I could sense like that it could very easily make people feel awkward, especially like when I had the bad cycle where nothing came of it. Right. It felt like maybe it was just my perception, but it felt like everyone around me was kind of like, hi, and like, you know, just treating me differently and just being compassionate, which is like right. what they're supposed to do. But it made me feel worse in some ways. Cause I was like, oh, it's just like, I felt shame and embarrassment and it's not even my fault. So it's like all these things that patients talk about all the time, like feeling like something's wrong with them, feeling embarrassed, feeling angry, you know, all of those things I experienced and now understand better. 
But I think I really tried to be extra chill and cool. And so like, I didn't necessarily ask all the questions or I didn't allow myself to act like a true patient. Cause I was kind of mm-hmm. like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's fine. Like, we'll just do it again. But it's like, oh, interesting. I struggled. I struggled a lot with it. And like a few of the nurses saw me cry, but like probably none of my colleagues did probably my own doctor didn't because I just kind of was like, I don't want to be that person. Like I should know better, you know? Totally. Um, that made it harder for me, for That's sure. That's really interesting. So interesting. Um, so how old are the two kids now? So I have a six-year-old and um, a three-year-old. She just turned three. Okay. And how's it going? This episode is brought to you by Vegamore. I'm always trying to do right by my body. So when it comes to my hair and scalp health, finding a product that actually works and is made with clean ingredients always seems like a trade-off. But with Vegamore... I get products that are made with clean ingredients and give me visibly healthy hair and scalp. With Vegamore, I am able to have noticeably thicker, fuller, shinier, longer hair, all without the harsh ingredients. Every cute pink bottle of Vegamore products are 100% cruelty-free and are never formulated with potentially harmful chemicals like parabens or hormones. Okay, so I got my box of Vegamore products and I've been using them all for the past month. The shampoo, the conditioner, the grow hair serum, the hair foam, the eyelash serum, the eyebrow serum. It's been about a month, like I said, and my hair really does feel stronger and thicker. Everything looks better. And the shampoo in particular, I have to say, smells really good. The key is consistency in your routine for your most beautiful, healthy looking hair. I use Vegamore Grow Hair Serum daily and my hair and scalp are feeling better than ever. Here's another cool thing. Vegamore has these great value kits like the Grow Essentials Kit, where you get to try more than one amazing product at a time at great savings. So when you sign up for a monthly subscription, you save more and you never run low on the products that you need. And fun fact, guys, Vegamore sells one bottle of the Grow Hair Serum every 15 seconds on their website. That's how good this stuff is. So here is the deal, my beautiful listeners. For a limited time, you can get 20% off your first order by going to vegamore.com slash infertileaf and using code infertileaf at checkout. That's V-E-G-A-M-O-U-R dot com slash infertileaf, code infertileaf to save 20% on your first order. V-E-G-A-M-O-U-R dot com slash infertileaf, code infertileaf. Thanks, Vegamore. It's going great. It's really going great. Yeah. I, um, I really love it. I really love it. And I think now it's crazy to think back to a time where like, I couldn't picture myself doing this. Um, but I think it's just like when you're in a different stage of your life where your laser, like focused on your goals and you have to be somewhat selfish, it's hard to focus on these other things, but um, and I don't think everyone has to be a mom and that it's for everyone, but certainly for me, it's like a whole, it opened up a whole world that I never really thought much of before that. I was never that girl that dreamt of their wedding or thought about being a mom. I just kind of like, whatever's in front of me is what I'm working on. And that's what, that's what it is. But mm-hmm. now it all kind of came together. I'm very grateful. Yeah. One of the things, one of the many things I love and admire about you is that you're so honest and so open. And I want to talk about your social media, which is one of the first places where I originally saw you. You're always coming on and talking about real stuff that's going on in pop culture or, you know, the zeitgeist. 
um, in world issues, you know, for everything heavy from like Roe v. Wade to like a celebrity issue, you know, and you always come on and you're like busting myths and you're saying your truth. And I always turn to you when something big happens because I'm like, Ooh, what does Lucky have to say about this? And it's so, <laughs> I love it's that. so interesting. So tell me about your, your take on that and why it's so important for you to do all of that on social media and, you know, kind of set the record straight and put information out there and all that. Yeah. It's like one of those things that I accidentally stumbled into. Um, just like at a high level, what happened is I started out as like someone that was very buttoned up professional, like considered myself an academic, put all the energy I put into contact content creation really into like clinical research. So I'm like always someone that needs to be doing something else. Like mm -hmm. it, I love patient care, but it's not enough for me to just be like, be like nine to five, see patients go home. Like I always need to be making something that's just like part of my MO. Mm -hmm. And so when I was a fellow, it was like, I'm going to take all of our data and, you know, answer burning questions with real data and like put out these great studies. And I was like a machine when it came to that. And then what happened was COVID. So I was uh, 17 to 18 weeks pregnant. It was like Cuomo was shutting the city down and I made a really difficult decision and, you know, called our managing partner of our practice and said, I have asthma. I'm pregnant. This is a respiratory virus. I don't know what any of this means. And I'm freaking out. And I think because I'm pregnant, a little voice in my head said like, this is more dangerous for you, even though we had no data mm -hmm. and it felt like such a crazy radical decision because at that point I was wearing an N95 in January of 2020, by the way. So like my husband wow. keeps his ear to the street, he's always on Reddit and he was like, they're building a hospital in like 10 days in Wuhan. Like there's something happening there and you have this terrible asthma. Like it gets really bad, especially in the winter with viruses. I'm going to have you wear this N95, like in areas wow. like the subway. So I would clear the whole subway car because people would be like, what's wrong with her? Oh my God. <laughs> um, yes. And I was wearing it during monitoring as of like February morning monitoring when it's really busy and there's a lot of patients you're interacting with. People were like, what are you doing? It's just like listening to that inner voice. Yeah. And that's a very formative experience for me because it's the first time I've done something so wacky and out of the ordinary based on my inner voice and also my husband's voice, which I trust him. Like if he's saying something like that, he's not telling me to do something crazy. Like I really trusted him and I trusted my inner voice. And so later when the, all the data emerged, it was like, this is so much more dangerous for, for pregnant women. Um, you know, there were a lot more stillbirths during COVID. It was really devastating and scary. And that was obviously before the vaccines. So there was no other protection. So I stayed home for like, almost three months. And I guess it wasn't that big of a deal because we stopped doing cycles shortly, like probably like two to three weeks after my decision, we stopped doing cycles. So a lot of us are doing this remote work and I'm isolated. I'm scared. I'm alone. My whole family lives in Canada. The border is like now real. You're not going to be able to go visit them. And I'm like, how do I connect with others? And so I start scrolling. I really hardly ever used Instagram my account was private and like, I had no intention. I felt, felt like it was super cringy and unprofessional and there's no way I was ever going to do it. I was like, I don't get the utility or why you would ever even do this. Like I was kind of mm -hmm. snobby about it. Okay. And next thing you know, I'm like reading, I'm like following all these doctors, these pediatricians, these people that are talking about COVID and what they're seeing on the wards. And I'm like glued to my screen. Yeah. And then later, you know, months into it, people are like, no one's talking about the pregnant women or those who are trying to conceive or these cycles being halted. 
So I kind of started becoming like a little bit of an activist, like, yes, like no one's talking about this and people are starved for information and I'm starved for human interaction and connection. Mm-hmm. And that's how it all kind of came together. And then vaccines is when it like really took off for me because people started making up these stories that the vaccine w- would cause infertility. And I'm like, if I don't speak out about this, who will? Right. And I remember I, I started my blog and one of my early blog posts was about the COVID vaccine fertility, you know, the, the misinformation. And I remember my husband leans over and he's like, he reads it and he goes, are you really sure about this before you publish this? Because you're coming out and like, put it, you're putting yourself out there. Totally. And I said, yeah, because based on how this vaccine was made and how it works, like this doesn't make sense. Why would it cause problems with the placenta? So I'm just saying what, why I think it doesn't make sense and why if I was still pregnant, because at that point I'd had my um, daughter in August in 2020, but I was like, if I was still pregnant, I would gladly take it. So I got my vaccine, like, I think it was Christmas Eve or something like that. And I published this blog and then it started spreading like wildfire because no mm-hmm. one, I think a lot of people didn't want to go out on a limb because they're like, well, I don't know. Like we don't have right. data or the CDC hasn't said this yet. So I kind of put myself out there and then fast forward to like, 2021, people are still talking about COVID, but I moved on and realized there's so much other crap, as you know, in our field. That's Mm -hmm. like so many things that just go direct to marketing, direct to consumer. It's not like it's been vetted with the proper data. And I get asked about it every day. And I was like, you know what, instead of just focusing on this one public health issue, which now like the word is getting out and everyone's on the same page, Mm -hmm. I can use my platform as a megaphone. And I still had a very small following, but people were starting to listen. And now it's just like taken on a life of its own. So that's like, I said Mm -hmm. the short version, but that was a long way. No, I love that. And I love that you have the guts and the bravery to go out on a limb with some really, you know, it's in a, in someone who's in a position that you are, it can be scary to put your, put yourself out there and, you know, you get backlash. And obviously we all know, especially in Instagram and on the, on the internet, you know, there's a lot of trolls and haters and, you know, people can come out of the woodwork trying to like knock you down for something that you stand for. So I've always admired that, that you always have stood up for whatever you think is right or whatever you believe in. Well, Um, I appreciate that. I think it's important to know that it's not all sunshine and lollipops. Like I definitely feel like there's a lot of great things that have happened in my life and in my career. And it's been um, because of social media and my involvement and it's been a form of maturation for me because now I'm like, I've just gained a new sense of confidence. And I I think like you really own what you believe in, but I won't ever speak about something unless I really know about it. Right. So I guess like, I'm not feeling like it's that big of a risk because I'm like, this is my expertise. This is what I, these are the conversations I'm having every single day Sure. and it's based on data. So like, I have nothing that I have to hide from and something that I've, I'm not going to say I'm never going to do this, but something I've remained true to up until this point, and I think it served me well, is I, and I'm not knocking people that that do this, but I haven't monetized my account. I don't really advertise. I mean, I've definitely, like someone gave me this beautiful necklace and I I, like tagged them, but that's different. I don't really um, advertise Mm -hmm. or sell things like supplements or anything like that because I already have a day job. I don't need this to be my job. I want to be a community. And I feel like I want my community to trust me 
Is there anything that you would shy away from aside from what you just said? But are there any topics that like, you're like, I'm not even going to touch that. You know, there's a lot of heavy shit going on in the world. Is there, you know, anything that comes to mind that you're like, nope, not going there? Not really. (laughs) Not really. But like, you know, with everything that's going on right now, like I'm not a geopolitical scholar, so I'm not going to like start spouting off and acting like I'm someone that I'm not, but I am a human and I know, you know, what's important when it comes to humanity and caring Mm -hmm. about other people and, Mm -hmm. you know, um, having compassion for those who are suffering and amplifying, you know, links for people to donate and trying to just make a difference. So, you know, I'm, I'm not going to shy away from things. I'm not going to be like, if it's not about ovaries, then I'm not talking about it. Like I think that ovaries are nothing. Yeah. And I think everyone, you know, I'm going to be at ASRM, our annual conference next week. And it's so funny. It's like, it's my second ASRM after COVID and COVID obviously put the kibosh in a lot of these in-person meetings. So before ASRM, I mean, before COVID, like I was just like there presenting research. I feel like a lot of people didn't know me. It was just kind of like, you know, whatever. Now it's like, I'm giving like two or three different talks on like social media. And it's like, how did this happen? But I think, you know, it's one of those things where it's not just for patients. It's not, there's, it's, it's like forming a community also with fellow physicians too. And I think the world has gone more virtual in general. And it's just like, we've learned how to make these connections. Like I think a lot more people now post pandemic can say that they have friends that they only know virtually from Instagram Mm -hmm. versus like our reality in 2019. Like that would have been considered weird. Now I'm like, wow, I feel like maybe I have more Instagram friends than in-person friends. And I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but it's just the way things have changed. Totally. That's what we always used to say with Fertility Rally before we started doing the in-person events. We were like, when you'd finally meet someone, it was like, I know everything about your vagina, but I've never seen your legs. Yes, <laughs> like, exactly. It's like, it's such an intimate, you know, place. I, I you think mentioned- that a lot of, sorry, I was just gonna say, I think a I'm lot sorry. of people also feel like you can only do things one way. And I always like say to fellow physicians or colleagues who are like, I could never do what you're doing. I'm like, well, you probably don't have to be so open. Like I choose to be open because I'm like, none of my family lives in New York. So like, I can't manage two different Instagrams. I'm like, I'm just putting it all out there. Like this is my trip. This is what I'm doing. Like I'm a very open sharing person. I always have been. Yeah. And so, and I also think like, it's nice for people to get to know you and I'm very open about that, but I think like, it's not a bad thing if you want to just focus on talking about ovaries. I don't want to make it sound like I think that's a bad thing. No, you're doing you. Everyone has their own level of comfort and boundaries. Totally. Anyway, you, met- you, gonna say? you mentioned other doctors. I want to talk about Doctors for Fertility, which yes. you are a part of. Tell me about that. And for anybody listening, what is DFF and what are you guys doing and why is it so important to you? Yeah, I would love to. So Doctors for Fertility is an organization, a not-for-profit that was founded by six REIs or fertility specialists. And it actually was started even before Roe v. Wade was overturned. I don't think when we started it, we thought that it would get that far, but I think we were starting to wake up with all of the state level bans that were taking place, like the six week ban and, or the heartbeat bill in Texas. That's when it started coming together and it was REIs from different states. And so all of us had our own perspective. You have like Dr. Gustin, who was based in Nebraska, who was like being such a vigilante and an activist and just navigating that system and figuring out 
you know, how to knock down bills that were threatening the way they, they conduct their day-to-day patient care. And we have like Natalie Crawford, Dr. Crawford in Texas, where these bills are actually, you know, affecting her patients and, and the people there. And then you have people like me or Dr. Serena Chen, who are like in New York City or New Jersey, which are blue states and, you know, it's not really impacting us. But I think that's so important because if you work in our field, you care about women's health, you care about access to reproductive health care, whether that's contraception, whether that's pregnancy management, um, whether that is, you know, IVF. And the reason we formed this organization is because we know that it's a slippery slope and rights can get rolled back. And something that made us very concerned is that Roe v. Wade in the 70s, all the languages of those bills and those those laws didn't really take into account IVF because IVF wasn't really a thing back then, right? IVF became more of a thing in the 80s, 90s, and beyond. And so there is an intersection between IVF and abortion rights because there's a lot of people that believe in personhood of embryos. And the way we do IVF, as we just talked about with all the attrition and drop-off, is you're trying to overcome the inefficiency of reproduction, which means making sometimes as many embryos as you can. And a lot of people have incorrect assumptions. You know, people think that you can take an ectopic and take it out of the tube and put it in the uterus and save it that way. Like these are lawmakers that are not well-versed in issues of women's health. And we recognize that. And we said, you know what? This we work in a vulnerable area where people might start to impose restrictions on us and say crazy things like you can only fertilize this many eggs and that is going to hurt our patients. It's going to drive up the cost mm-hmm. of IVF. It's going to lower the success rates. And we don't want to be bullied and told what to do by lawmakers and people that have no idea what they're talking about clearly. And so that's why we form this organization. So it's advocacy, it's education, education of the general public, education of lawmakers, it's raising money. So we fundraise and we donate to organizations, causes, and we have a C4, which is like a PAC so that we can actually make political donations and support candidates who care about our cause and are going to actually make an effort to protect reproductive rights. And so that is a unique thing because there are a lot of other great organizations like ASRM and Resolve that we work very closely with and we support them 100%. But there are certain restrictions where they can't necessarily support political candidates with funding. So okay. I think we have a unique angle where we can serve a need that needs to be met. Right. I love that. So if anybody wants more info on that, check out doctorsforfertility.com you know, it says right on your homepage, I'm reading, it says creating a world in which every person who wants a family has access to fertility and reproductive care. I love that you guys are doing that. And everybody that I've talked to about is so passionate about it. So thank you guys for forming that. And, you know, we'll support you in any way possible. Thank you for lending your platform to talk about it. Yeah, of course. It means a lot to me as well. So before we wrap, I just want to ask you if for anybody who might be listening to this, who is new to this infertility community, who's really going through it right now, who's having a tough time. You know, you've been doing this for years and years. You've been through ART yourself. Tell somebody something that you know now that you wish you knew then, or maybe like words of advice or just wisdom. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I have to choose my words carefully because what I'm about to say might sound to some people like toxic positivity, and I don't mean for it to but I tend to be really upbeat, optimistic person. And as much as there can be ups and downs and twists and turns, 
And life isn't always fair. And sometimes people have a much harder road than others. And there isn't always a rhyme or reason. I think we are at a place in our field where there are ways to help you get there. And I think as much as I don't want to overestimate what science can overcome and what we can do, and not everything's ever going to be 100% or guaranteed, my observation from working this field for many years is that persistence can pay off a lot of times. And I think a number one contributor to patients not ending in the place that they wanted to be in this journey, a lot of it can be patient dropout, right? And there's so many different reasons that that happens. But I think mental health is a huge one, right? People get burnt out. And I think that it's very easy, and I did this myself in my journey, to try to be a hero and to underestimate how challenging it can be and to really isolate oneself and not want to bother other people and look for you know others to give you support. And I think it's always better to overestimate how much support you might need and overprepare and give yourself grace and know that there is this inner voice and tendency that is just like human nature to blame ourselves, to feel ashamed. I think if we mentally prepare ourselves that these are all the things that can happen and being aware of it, then you can arm yourself with a defense against those things because those are the things that really wear on patients. And I think that if you can find a care team that makes you feel supported, heard, and you know, you have a, a, hopefully if you have a partner, a good partner, you have a good group of friends or families, you know, whatever your support circle is, then you can really get through a lot. And I think patients who are able to stick it out and they're able to, you know, get through all of this with the support and with all of the tools, you eventually see that most people do get there. And I don't mean that in a toxic positivity way. I mean, you know, it's just sometimes it takes persistence to pay off. And so I hope that that is perceived as a message of hope and optimism, because when you're in the thick of it, it can feel like you're in this never ending tunnel and there's no light at the end of it. But as someone who follows many patients, who's followed now thousands of patients longitudinally, you know, I've seen so many people go from being in the depths of despair to like eventually getting to a place where we found a resolution. And there's so many different ways that that could look, but just know that and hold that in your heart. Um, You know, know that nothing is forever and how you're feeling right now isn't going to be how you're feeling next week or the next month and just hold on, but, you know, do whatever you can to help yourself. Self-care is very important and mental health is paramount. Thank you so, so much for listening. You guys are the best. If you haven't already and you have two minutes, please go rate and review this podcast, pass it on to somebody who might benefit from listening to it. And also definitely check out Fertility Rally, which is the community that I co-founded, the place I wish I had when I was going through it. We have five to six support groups per week, guys, based on all different things. A lot of them are general infertility and family building through ART. Some of them are are a little bit more specific. So go check us out at fertilityrally.com. You can also check us out on Instagram at Fertility rally. You can always reach out to me, DM me. Please know you're not alone. If you are part of the worst club with the best members, we get it. We're here from you for you. And we are happy to have you join our group. So check us out at fertility rally. Thanks again to lucky Secon, And I will talk to you guys next time.